You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Maddening Mystery of a Murdered Billionaire Almost six years after pharmaceuticals magnate Barry Sherman and his wife, Honey, became two of the wealthiest people ever to be murdered, police still haven't identified the killers. But they have turned up no shortage of potential suspects and a family drama worthy of succession. By Matthew Campbell and Ari Altstetter the call came in to the Toronto Police Homicide Squad on a chilly December afternoon. A man and woman had been found dead at a home in an upmarket suburban neighborhood, posed in a horrifying tableau. They were side by side at the edge of an indoor pool, held up by leather belts looped around their necks and tied to a metal railing. By the time the first officers arrived, in response to a 911 call from a real estate agent who was showing the house, rigor mortis had set in indicating they'd been dead for hours. Brandon Price, a young homicide detective with sharp features and close-cropped brown hair, drove to the scene. The house was thick with people, uniformed constables to establish a perimeter, forensic specialists to comb for evidence, a coroner to prepare the remains for transport to an autopsy. An officer took photos, documenting the location and condition of the bodies, as well as the state of the many other rooms. Outside was a growing number of journalists, dispatched as word filtered out about the identities of the deceased. They were Barry and Honey Sherman, one of Canada's wealthiest and best-known couples, and the residents of the house. Barry, 75, was the founder and chairman of Apotex, a large generic pharmaceutical producer. His net worth was estimated at $3.6 billion at the time of his death in 2017. He and Honey, 70, used that money to become major philanthropists, donating generously to charities, cultural institutions, and Jewish causes. They weren't the richest people in Canada, but they were as prominent as anyone, appearing at seemingly every charity gala in Toronto and known to have strong connections to the Liberal Party of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Autopsies would determine that both of the Shermans had died from ligature neck compression, strangulation. They were among the wealthiest murder victims in history. Price and his colleagues have been investigating the Shermans' deaths for more than five years, alongside private detectives hired by the couple's adult children, Lauren, who's now 47, Jonathan, 40, Alexandra, 37, and Kaylin, 32. In that time, no one has been arrested, let alone charged. 
A representative for the Toronto Police Service declined to comment on the specifics of the investigation, but said that it remains active and that it would be inaccurate to describe the murders as a cold case. They're nonetheless an enduring mystery. Who had a motive to kill both Sherman and his wife? Why would that person choose such a gruesome method? And how did they cover their tracks so effectively? Even though the police and the private team haven't identified suspects, they have turned up a great deal about the Shermans and their world. Most of their findings were unknown when Bloomberg Businessweek last covered the case in 2018. They've been revealed for this story through legal filings, interviews with people familiar with the relevant events, who declined to speak on the record about private matters, and a cache of police materials released following petitions from the Toronto Star. As investigators dug into the Shermans' past, they uncovered a family drama rife with vendettas and grudges, accusations and rumors, centered on a dominant patriarch and a next generation vying for his favor. With Barry Sherman gone, that drama entered a new bare-knuckle phase. Suddenly inheriting his empire, his children made it clear that their priorities differed from their father's. They broke with his and Honey's closest confidants and began making plans to sell off Apotex, the company Sherman had devoted his life to building. Then, some of them turned on each other. In the summer of 2017, Apotex had a liquidity problem. A judge in Ottawa had just ruled against the company in a legal battle with AstraZeneca, the UK-based pharma giant, which had accused it of infringing on patents for the heartburn drug Prilosec. The decision would require Apotex to pay about 300 million Canadian dollars, about 227 million dollars, equivalent to its entire annual budget for developing new products. To some extent, such courtroom losses were a hazard of doing business. Generic drug makers routinely introduce new products at risk, putting them on sale while they seek to invalidate the original drug's patent in court. If the generic producers fail, they're ordered to pay damages. If they win, they keep the revenue from the initial sales. Sherman had engaged in dozens of similar legal battles in his long career. He was neither a lawyer nor a drug scientist. Rather, he had a doctorate in aeronautics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But after an uncle died suddenly, leaving behind a small generic drug company called Empire Laboratories, Sherman returned to his hometown of Toronto and took over. He sold Empire after six years and used the proceeds to set up Apotex in 1974. Heavy set and bespectacled, Sherman turned out to have a ferocious talent for the generics industry, and particularly for patent challenges. He spent much of his time on litigation, astonishing his attorneys by reading every brief they prepared. When Apotex lost a case, an appeal was a foregone conclusion. Sherman almost always fought to the end. He built the company into Canada's top drug manufacturer, responsible for filling one in five domestic prescriptions without going public or taking outside investment, leaving him in complete control. Sherman didn't always act like the billionaire he was. His and Honey's home, while large and comfortable, wasn't in a particularly prestigious neighborhood. He drove a series of beat-up cars, wore ancient frayed dress shirts, and often ate at Swiss Chalet, a chicken chain where combo meals cost less than 15 bucks. What he enjoyed most was work, and he had an almost bottomless capacity for it, rarely taking a day off and dispatching emails at all hours. 
At the downtown charity functions he attended with Honey, the main decision-maker for the couple's philanthropic endeavors, he mostly talked business. Although Sherman wasn't Apotex's chief executive officer, that was a British scientist named Jeremy Desai, he had the final say on big decisions. His style could be idiosyncratic. When a publicly listed company is engaged in a major legal case, it often makes a provision for the potential loss and plans its finances accordingly. Sherman preferred to wait until defeat was certain. Only then would he instruct his lieutenants to get the cash together, tapping his personal holdings if necessary. It was a risky strategy, but Sherman was confident he'd never be short. Still, the AstraZeneca judgment represented a huge hit, and it came at a time when Sherman faced significant demands on his funds. Apotex was planning a $184 million research and manufacturing hub in Florida, while simultaneously considering a costly expansion of its Canadian production lines, something the patriotic Sherman considered a legacy project. He and Honey were also working with designers to plan a new house in Tony Forest Hill, just north of downtown Toronto, where she wanted to move. Another line item related to Honey, too. Despite Sherman's great wealth, she had relatively little in her own name, leaving her dependent on her frugal husband. Sherman was moving toward transferring a significant portion of his assets to Honey, which she'd be free to use as she wished. One of Apotex's most powerful competitors, Israel's Teva Pharmaceutical, had also opened a new and potentially expensive legal front. In a lawsuit filed in Pennsylvania federal court in July 2017, Teva claimed that Desai, the Apotex CEO, had been having an affair with a Teva executive who'd passed him confidential documents about products. Apotex and Desai denied acting improperly. The matter was still enough of an embarrassment that Sherman's advisors urged him to get rid of Desai, but he refused, and it appeared no one at Apotex could change his mind. A further drain on Sherman's resources was the multitude of relatives, friends, and hangers-on who'd tapped him for money over the years. For the most part, he was happy to oblige, underwriting everything from homes to dubious investment ideas. According to police documents, Sherman bought a house for a daughter's brother-in-law and a $1 million Canadian dollar savings bond for her mother-in-law. For his son's boyfriend, he bankrolled a real estate business and provided a monthly stipend that continued even after the couple broke up. Sherman also gave about $8 million Canadian dollars in assistance to a cousin, Carrie Winter, whose late father had founded Empire Laboratories. Winter later sued Sherman, claiming unsuccessfully that a long-dormant financial provision entitled him and his siblings to 20% of Apotex. Then there were the four children themselves. Sherman was often absent when they were young, missing family dinners and sports events to be at the office. He was more generous with his money than his time, and he funded the lifestyles and business ventures of all four kids. Despite Sherman's wishes, none was interested in working for Apotex, and he could be uncharitable in assessing their characters, telling friends and colleagues he was disappointed by their choices. He was slightly less critical of Alexandra, who'd trained as a nurse. After the Shermans were killed, a relative would tell police that the couple had some frustrations with their children because of their lack of work ethic, because the children were raised in and exposed to a lot of money. Honey's relationship with the kids could be particularly strained. She was outspoken to the point of abrasiveness. After Jonathan came out as gay in high school, she struggled to hide her discomfort with his sexuality. 
Sherman was more accepting. Honey periodically urged him to cut back on his financial support for the children, to encourage them to be more independent, but he generally refused. Some of Sherman's largest checks went to two people, Jonathan, who had more of an interest in business than his siblings, and Frank D'Angelo, a flamboyant entrepreneur whom Sherman met in the early 2000s. For Jonathan, Sherman backed Green Storage, a self-storage operation Jonathan ran with a childhood friend. Land title records show that at the time the Shermans died, Green Storage had received $135 million Canadian dollars in low-cost loans from a company called Our Holdings, which, according to a person with knowledge of the matter, Sherman had entirely funded. D'Angelo had investments in restaurants, brewing, energy drinks, and film production. Most were unprofitable. An internal tally prepared by Sherman's colleagues and reviewed by Businessweek shows that Sherman extended hundreds of low-interest loans to D'Angelo's company from 2003 to late 2017. Almost nothing was repaid. The individual loans were typically small, often only a few hundred thousand dollars. But the document shows that by the end of Sherman's life, the total sum was more than 268 million Canadian dollars, including interest. D'Angelo, who didn't respond to a detailed list of questions from Business Week, is something of a comic figure in Toronto, with a persona that seems drawn in equal parts from Goodfellows and Slapshot. Among other endeavors, he's known for a late-night TV vehicle called The Being Frank Show, and for producing B-movies with names such as Real Gangsters and Sicilian Vampire. What Sherman saw in D'Angelo was a matter of speculation for those around him, some concluded that Sherman, an archetypal nerd, relished hanging out with a backslapping guy's guy who was friendly, in turn, with figures such as Phil Esposito, the legendary Boston Bruins center. In Canada, NHL players qualify as meaningful name drops. According to people familiar with the situation, Jonathan tried for years to persuade his father to stop supporting D'Angelo, who, he argued, was taking advantage of Sherman not to mention squandering money that might have gone toward the children's inheritance. Others, including Jack Kay, Sherman's longtime right-hand man, also urged him to cut off D'Angelo. But Sherman bristled at Jonathan's criticism, describing him as petulant for questioning his decisions. Matters became tense enough that at one point, Jonathan suggested he might seek a medical determination that his father, viewed as an intellectual titan by virtually everyone who worked with him, was incompetent to manage his own affairs. Sherman found the idea ridiculous, and the confrontation blew over. A representative for Jonathan declined to comment, apart from a statement that Jonathan remains committed to working with his siblings, furthering his parents' legacy of charitable giving and community service, while also supporting the ongoing criminal investigation. The mid-2017 AstraZeneca defeat forced Sherman to reevaluate his spending. Right after the ruling, he emailed Jonathan and his business partner, telling them he was reluctant to advance more money to their ventures in the short term. In a message later that year, he urged the pair to quickly arrange bank mortgages to enable repaying 50 to 60 million. But Sherman emphasized that the constraints were temporary. I am certain that we will be able to advance further substantial funds to you, if wanted for further investments, beginning in 2019. With D'Angelo, Sherman took a harder line. Losses of 500000 per month appear to be endless. Despite endless assurances that we are now doing well, where is it all going? 
he asked in a September 2017 email. D'Angelo wrote that business is just coming around. It's on a tight rope. Less than two weeks later, D'Angelo copied Sherman on a discussion of revenue shortfalls in his film and drinks businesses. Our timing is beyond brutal, he complained. Our movie, Sicilian Vampire, is number one movie on Mexican TV, and we are in this situation. I'm reading Fox, the effin' riot act, this Thursday. In response, Sherman said he'd had enough of D'Angelo's requests for cash. I have been providing funds month after month for years, averaging close to $1 million per month, he wrote. Approximately every two weeks I get another request for funds because some expected revenue is late, but in reality it is to cover endless losses. There have been countless assurances of various good things that were imminent, but almost nothing has materialized. He continued, I will not be able to provide further funding beyond the end of this year, so we need to decide what to do with each division individually. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the moment the Sherman's housekeeper, Nelia Makintenge, arrived at 50 Old Colony Road early on Friday, December 15, 2017, she started noticing unusual things. In the three years she'd worked for the couple, the burglar alarm had always been on when she arrived in the morning. Now it was off. Nor was there any sign of Sherman, whom Makatenge usually found in the kitchen. He and Honey didn't appear to be home, and Makatenge began cleaning. The Sherman's real estate agent, Elise Stern, arrived and began giving a tour of the house to a couple who were considering buying it. Stern was leading everyone into the basement pool room when she saw the bodies slumped on the far side of the deck. She later told police she initially thought the Shermans might be doing some sort of weird meditation or yoga, but she soon realized something was amiss and hustled the prospective buyers out. Stern then asked Makatenge to go down and look. I am sure I saw them in the basement, she said. Something happened. Frightened, Makatenge refused. The family gardener, who was also in the house, offered to go down instead. She came back upstairs, shaking. The Sherman case landed that afternoon with a team led by Detective Sergeant Susan Gomez, a veteran cop of almost 30 years. But it was Price, a much younger detective, who went to the scene and was assigned as the primary investigator under Gomez's supervision. Speaking to reporters outside the Sherman home that night, Price made a comment the Toronto police would come to regret. I know that an event such as this can be very concerning to the community, he said. I can say that at this point in the investigation, though it is very early, we are not currently seeking or looking for an outstanding suspect. Partly, according to a person familiar with the investigation, Price made the statement to calm fears in the neighborhood. There had been a number of recent break-ins, and police wanted to avoid panicking residents. But the implication of his remarks was clear, and local papers began reporting that detectives suspected Sherman could have murdered Honey, then killed himself. Gathered with their loved ones at Alexandra's house, the Sherman's children refused to accept this notion. Their parents were rich, 
in relatively good health and delighted by their expanding ranks of grandkids. Sherman sometimes joked that he intended to live forever because the world couldn't go on without him. The children decided the police were heading down the wrong path. Within a day, they'd hired Brian Greenspan, a celebrated Canadian criminal lawyer who initiated a private investigation. Its first goal was straightforward, to prove Sherman wasn't responsible for his and Honey's deaths. Over the weekend, Greenspan began assembling a team of retired police led by Tom Klatt, a former Toronto homicide officer, and made plans for second autopsies of the bodies. Whatever Toronto police suspected early on, they weren't dismissing the possibility that both Barry and Honey had been murdered. Officers fanned out across the city, even searching the sewers around 50 Old Colony. They applied for warrants to search the Sherman's electronic devices. Honey used a white iPhone, Barry, somewhat eccentrically, a Blackberry, and compared crime scene images with photos taken for the real estate listing to determine whether anything valuable was missing. An officer lifted fingerprints from Honey's Lexus SUV. Others sought seven years of the Sherman's medical billing records, partly to determine whether either was suffering from any undisclosed terminal illness or any substantial pain which could alter their outlook on life, as officers described their aim in a warrant document. Detectives also attempted to reconstruct the couple's final hours. They'd last been seen on the evening of December 13th, after a meeting with the team designing their new house. Sherman sent a routine email to colleagues shortly afterward, then went silent. No one heard from him or Honey the next day, a Thursday, even as their phones lit up with messages, photos from Alexandra, a holiday party invitation from Jonathan, and notes from various Apotex executives. The unresponsiveness was extremely unusual, especially for Sherman, who tended to reply to emails right away. The police interviewed a cross-section of relatives, friends, and associates. Price met early on with Kay, who was the vice chairman of Apotex and Sherman's closest colleague. Kay rejected the suggestion that Sherman could be a killer. Barry would never harm anyone, he said, according to police notes. Alexandra told two other detectives that even though her parents had often quarreled when she was younger, in the past few years they were a lot more in love and not arguing and spending more time together. Jonathan provided a similar assessment and added that, to his knowledge, they'd never experienced mental health issues. At the same time, he said, there are people out there who would have a grudge against them and would have a reason to hurt them. Just how abnormal a probe this was became even clearer after police visited Sherman's office and removed his hard drive as evidence. The following day, the Toronto Force received an email from Goodman's, Apotex's longtime law firm, warning that the computer and Sherman's other electronics contained documents that were highly confidential and proprietary to the company. The lawyers demanded that the devices be segregated and sealed until they could establish a process for protecting corporate information. After discussions with government legal advisors, the police consented to a remarkable arrangement. Goodman's attorneys would get to read Sherman's files first, then provide access only to material they'd determined wasn't legally privileged. The parallel private investigation was also highly unusual. Almost from the start, people familiar with the matter said, the family's investigators believed the police were mishandling their inquiry. Most glaring was the suspicion of murder-suicide, 
The pathologist who conducted the first autopsy of the Sherman's bodies had told Price that murder-suicide, double-suicide, and double-homicide were all possibilities, and initial police warrant applications listed only Honey as a murder victim, while the nature of Sherman's death was unclear. For their own autopsy, for their own autopsy, the private team hired David Chasson, a doctor who'd formerly served as chief forensic pathologist for the province of Ontario. The day before the Sherman's funeral, he examined their remains at the Toronto Coroner's Complex while Clatt and others from Greenspan's group looked on. According to the people familiar with the matter, Chasson noted wide markings on the Sherman's necks, the imprint of the belts that had tied them to the pool railing. But the belts, he thought, might not have been used to strangle them. Chasson also observed another set of markings, which were narrower, as though from a cord or rope. No such item had been found. If Sherman had hanged himself from the railing, he would obviously have been unable to dispose of whatever had left the second set of markings. It was far likelier that someone had put him in that position. Greenspan's team told the homicide squad about Chasson's findings right away and offered to have the pathologist brief police. But it was more than a month before Gomez, Price's superior, met with Chasson. Shortly after that, she announced in a press conference that the police now believed both Shermans were the victims of a targeted murder. The force completed its searches of 50 Old Colony in late January, six weeks after the discovery of the bodies. Clatt was standing by with a group of retired forensic investigators to take over the scene. They conducted a fresh search for fingerprints and palm impressions and used a specialized vacuum to gather fibers that might not be visible to the naked eye. At more than 12,000 square feet, the home presented a complicated puzzle. For one thing, the pool wasn't necessarily where the killings had occurred. The Shermans drove home separately on the night of December 13th, with Honey arriving first. It appeared that Sherman dropped his belongings just past the side door he'd used to enter from the sunken garage, perhaps the location where he was attacked. Honey's iPhone, which she usually kept close at hand, was found in a ground-floor powder room that family members had never known her to use. The private team didn't have access to the same picture the police did. Its relationship with the force was chilly, with officers declining to provide even basic information. At the second autopsy, the pathologist who'd conducted the original postmortem had given Greenspan's team a binder of crime scene photos. When police officials learned of it, they demanded the images be returned. Greenspan did so, though his group had already reviewed them. It wasn't merely that the Toronto cops resented being second-guessed. They saw no legal way to share evidence they'd gathered, and a defense lawyer would be sure to seize on any hint of an improper relationship. Using evidence from the outside investigators, they also feared, might leave them open to legal challenge. Undeterred by the risks, the Sherman children continued to fund the investigation. For them, money wasn't a problem. Barry Sherman's finances were complex. He had two wills, both executed in 2005. The first dealt with personal assets such as real estate their value estimated by his trustees at around 69 million Canadian dollars. The second was for certain shares in privately held companies, including the entities that controlled Apotex. The wills were made public after a reporter for the Star, Kevin Donovan, sued to force their disclosure in a case the Sherman estate appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. 
but the bulk of Sherman's wealth resided in a pair of trusts set up to transfer money to family members over time. One listed only his and Honey's children as beneficiaries. The other allowed for discretionary distributions to additional relatives and their descendants. In most scenarios, however, the four Sherman kids would receive the largest portion of the assets. It was clear Jonathan would play a role in managing the family's riches. In addition to being the most business-oriented of his siblings, he was one of four trustees of his father's estate, along with Kay, Alexander's then-husband Brad Krawchick, and Alex Glassenberg, who managed the family's holding company, Surefam. With Sherman gone, the trustees were formally in charge of Apotex. One of the first major changes there came in late January 2018, when Desai, whom Sherman had refused to fire after Tiva's corporate espionage allegations, left the company. Desai would tell police that without Sherman, he did not have the protection or support to continue in his role. That left the question of broader corporate strategy. Focused on long-term growth, Sherman had maintained research and development spending at a considerably higher level than industry peers. And his plans for expanded manufacturing, including the new plant in Florida and more production lines in Canada, would require major commitments of capital. Although it was a big drug maker in Canadian terms, Apotex didn't have the global scale of rivals such as Teva, and according to colleagues, Sherman had figured he'd have to sell his company eventually. But he'd wanted to do so only after implementing his vision. By March 2018, Jonathan and his sisters had made a formal determination to sell Apotex much sooner. In a memo to the trustees, they said their wish was to exit the business as quickly as possible, 9 to 18 months max, and for the highest possible value, so they could free up cash to fully fund their future charitable endeavors. As a prelude to executing those instructions, Apotex slashed R&D expenses, looked for assets to unload, and put investment plans on hold. It would ultimately sell the Florida site at a loss. Not all the trustees were happy with the strategy. Kay had worked alongside Sherman since the early 1980s. They had adjacent offices, separated by a short hallway, and had spent thousands of hours together, often in good-natured debates about religion and other topics. Kay wanted to stick to Sherman's plans, people familiar with the matter said, convinced that the idea of selling earlier would have horrified his friend. Meanwhile, the people said, Jonathan bristled at Kay's decision, some months after the murders, to move down the hall into Sherman's former office. Kay presented the challenge as practical, allowing Apotex to free up space, but Jonathan interpreted it as overreach. In December 2018, shortly before the first anniversary of the killings, Jonathan asked Kay for a meeting. He was polite but firm, informing Kay that his employment at Apotex was over. The next day, his office access would be gone. Although Kay was clearly upset, he seemed resigned to the situation. He and Jonathan had been at odds for months. He soon walked out to his car. That wasn't the only close relationship that didn't survive the Sherman's deaths. At their memorial service, held in a cavernous convention hall and attended by about 6,000 people, Jonathan had announced a plan to honor his parents' philanthropic legacy. We would like to announce the creation of the Honey and Berry Foundation of Giving, he said in his eulogy. He envisioned a role for Honey's sister, Mary Schechtman. We would also like to ask our Aunt Mary to help guide this foundation in a way that best honors our parents. 
but the children ended up severing links with Sheckman, their mother's closest confidant. Money was one of the main causes of the estrangement. Soon after the murders, according to people with knowledge of the matter and correspondence seen by Business Week, Sheckman began claiming that Honey had intended to leave her hundreds of millions of dollars, much or even all the money Sherman had been moving to transfer to his wife. Sheckman repeated the claim over the following months and also requested other assets, including jewelry and real estate. Honey wanted me and my children to get everything of hers, Sheckman wrote in one email. She knew the value of her entire estate would be minimal compared to what you and your siblings would inherit, and none of you would need it financially. A representative for Sheckman declined to comment. Even if the transfer to Honey had occurred, she appears not to have had a will. None has been located. The money Schechtman said she was due was part of what the children were inheriting. Not surprisingly, they declined to give it to her. I cannot willy-nilly give my sister's inheritance away simply because Mary claims it is hers, Jonathan wrote in a message to his siblings. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. As the Sherman children tried to make sense of their new situation, police were investigating their parents' financial relationships. With his combative style and a business model centered on grabbing revenue that would otherwise go to big drug makers, Sherman had accumulated his share of enemies in the pharma industry. In an interview for Prescription Games, a 2001 book by Jeffrey Robinson, Sherman had said he wondered why a big drug company didn't just hire someone to knock me off. He'd continued, Perhaps I'm surprised that hasn't happened. That was a touch dramatic. Publicly traded corporations tend to prefer lawsuits to contract killings. And according to a person with knowledge of their investigation, no one in Sherman's industry dealings stood out to police as a potential suspect. Nor were they certain, based on the crime scene, that the murders were the work of hired professionals. Paid hits in Canada, as in other Western countries, are typically carried out with a quick bullet or two to the head. Several people in Sherman's orbit instead became of considerable interest to detectives. The most obvious to them was Winter, the cousin who'd sued Sherman for a stake in Apotex. He was an early focus of the police investigation, the person with knowledge of it said, and Price interviewed him at length. Winter had made no secret of his anger toward Sherman, who, he claimed, had concealed an option agreement intended to benefit him and his siblings. A judge in Ontario's Superior Court of Justice had thrown out Winter's suit about three months before the Shermans were killed. Soon after their deaths, Winter told the Canadian Broadcast Corp that he'd previously fantasized about killing his cousin, saying Sherman would come out of the building at Apotex and I'd just decapitate him. Winter added, I wanted to roll his head down the parking lot. He declined to comment. Price and his team also looked into D'Angelo, whose unprofitable brewing, restaurant, and film ventures Sherman had funded before threatening in late 2017 to end his support. The Sherman estate would eventually write off D'Angelo's debts, concluding there was no way to recover the money. And they scrutinized Jonathan, 
who'd moved to put his mark on the family empire and was one of the main financial beneficiaries of his parents' demise. To establish whether any of the three could have been involved, police analyzed the records of phone numbers they were known to use, mapping their communications and whereabouts before and after the Shermans were killed. Officers also obtained tower dumps, data that show every device connected to a cell tower in a given period for the area around Old Colony Road, as well as the places where the couple had been in the hours leading up to their deaths. Police could then check whether numbers came up that were linked to Winter, D'Angelo, Jonathan, or other individuals on detectives' radar, for example, by being registered to a business address associated with one of them. But the phone analysis and other police inquiries into the men didn't turn up hard evidence, the person familiar with the probe said. Even if each of the three had a potential motive, detectives couldn't link them to the crime. In the autumn of 2018, more than 10 months after the murders, Greenspan called a press conference. Its purpose was partly to announce that the Sherman family had set up a tip line and was offering a reward of as much as 10 million Canadian dollars for information leading to charges. Greenspan indicated that he hoped the money would induce someone with inside knowledge to come forward. And as they become wealthy, their colleagues who were engaged in this crime will become the subjects of a prosecution, he said. Greenspan also used the occasion to slam the police, citing the findings of his own investigators. Toronto officers, he said, had failed to properly examine and assess the crime scene and had failed to recognize the suspicious and staged manner in which the Shermans' bodies were situated, leading to the discarded suspicion of a murder-suicide. He claimed police had neglected to check all points of entry into 50 Old Colony and had missed at least 25 palm or fingerprint impressions. Greenspan said he was delivering his remarks in part to light the fire under the Toronto police, which was still refusing to cooperate with his group. He urged it to accept a public-private partnership in which the external investigators would augment the resources of city detectives and said his team's evidence would stand up to scrutiny in a future trial. Contrary to Greenspan's wishes, the two investigations did not begin working more closely after his comments. If anything, the chasm widened. Out of view, the police did have an intriguing lead. Early in their investigation, officers had canvassed the Sherman's neighborhood for surveillance footage taken around the time of the murders. The couple had no working cameras on their own property. Residents recognized everyone who turned up in the videos, with one exception, a lone figure in a winter coat and hat, or hood, who'd spent a curious amount of time close to the Sherman's home. The images were maddeningly poor, though. The person looked vaguely male. Police began calling him the walking man in judicial documents and appeared to stand between 5 feet 6 and 5 feet 9 inches. But it was impossible to make out his face or other details. His only distinctive feature was the way he walked, with a habit of kicking up his right foot with each step. Detectives found his behavior extremely suspicious, so much so that they said in warrant paperwork that their investigative theory is that this individual is involved in the murders, but they were unable to determine his identity. By 2019, their investigation had been underway for more than a year, still with no arrests. The private probe was similarly inconclusive. The tip line Greenspan had set up did receive a large volume of calls. Inevitably, many were from cranks and purported psychics. Some were from people offering useful information. None was from the insider Greenspan had speculated might break open the case. In early 2019, 
Alexandra stopped replying to calls and messages from Jonathan. Before then, the siblings, who'd been close since childhood, had been in regular communication. For example, while Greenspan represented all four children, it was Jonathan and Alexandra who were functionally his clients, holding regular meetings with him. The eldest and youngest children, Lauren and Kaylin, weren't deeply engaged with the private investigation. Jonathan sent Alexandra a long email in April, headed, I miss you, please read. He told her he'd always counted on you as my closest confidant, and I'm feeling pretty hurt that you don't want to talk to me. Jonathan continued, If there is something I've done to upset you, to the point that you won't answer the phone when I call, could you please explain it to me? Eventually, he learned what had changed. Alexandra, four people with knowledge of her views said, had begun to think Jonathan might have been involved in their parents' deaths. It's unclear what drove her to that suspicion, and the police, according to the person with knowledge of their investigation, didn't view it as being based on any evidence. Alexandra hired her own lawyer, John Rosen, known for his work defending serial murderer and rapist Paul Bernardo. In August 2019, Rosen sent a letter to Greenspan. He wrote that Alexandra wanted Greenspan to cease the parallel investigation and to deliver forthwith to the Toronto Police Service investigators a copy of your complete file. In the meantime, Rosen said, Greenspan was no longer authorized to publicly claim to represent her. Although Jonathan wanted to keep working with Greenspan, the lawyer concluded it would be inadvisable to continue. His probe ended officially in December 2019, and its findings were turned over to the police. A representative for Alexandra declined to comment beyond a statement that she remains hopeful that the case will be solved and urges anyone with relevant information to contact the homicide squad. At the same time as Jonathan's relationship with Alexandra broke down, tensions were emerging between him and Glassenberg, the Sherfam manager. Originally from South Africa, Glassenberg had worked for Sherman since the 1990s and knew more about his business activities than virtually anyone. Jonathan, according to documents reviewed by Businessweek, argued that Glassenberg was refusing to share information to which he was entitled and was making key decisions without his input. A representative for Glassenberg denied these claims and said he has at all times acted fairly and appropriately in his dealings with Jonathan Sherman and has abided assiduously by his fiduciary and other duties. Alexandra and her sisters sided with Glassenberg in what soon became a major rift. The situation worsened steadily through 2020 to the point that Jonathan threatened to go to court to press his grievances, litigation that would be sure to attract enormous media attention. Through their lawyers, the sisters suggested that if he did so, they might sue to remove Jonathan as an estate trustee. Before anyone filed a lawsuit, the four siblings agreed to professional mediation. The process eventually resulted in the appointment of a new board for Sherfam, including one representative nominated by each of the siblings. After being installed in mid-2021, the new board's first task was to finally implement the decision the children had made three years earlier and start a formal effort to sell Apotex. Meanwhile, the police kept investigating, offering no public updates about their progress. They were still trying to determine the identity of the walking man and getting nowhere. Price broke the silence in late 2021, releasing a brief video of the mysterious individual and appealing for citizens' help in identifying him. Given that detectives had been aware of the person's presence near 50 Old Colony since 2018, why had they waited this long to disclose the video? To critics, 
It appeared the force was trying to show that its investigation into a crime that remained a subject of fascination in Toronto hadn't been completely fruitless. A more charitable interpretation would be that Price hoped to revive public interest and prompt some hitherto unknown witness to reveal themselves. Hank Itzinga, the current head of the Homicide Squad, has publicly emphasized that it's not uncommon for complex murder cases to be resolved years after the fact. While the Sherman investigation remains live, it's not nearly as active as before. Gomez, the original supervising detective, has been promoted and no longer works in homicide. Price was also promoted and is now a detective sergeant with responsibility for the overall management of the Sherman file. Only one detective, Dennis Yim, is assigned to it full-time. According to a person with knowledge of his work, Yim has recently been focused on probing Sherman's financial dealings in the U.S., including through various shell companies and offshore entities. Still, the person said, detectives' best hope at this point is that someone, somewhere, will come forward with information that leads to a breakthrough. While the Shermans were alive, their children were part of a tight network of extended family, coming together for elaborate Jewish holiday celebrations that honey through at their home. Many of those bonds have now been broken. Although Jonathan and Alexandra live within a short drive and both have young kids of their own, they haven't been on speaking terms since 2019. When they communicate, it's through their attorneys. Alexandra has also split from her husband, and Kaylin divorced the man she married after the murders. The efforts by the new Surefam board to find a buyer for Apotex were successful, and last year the company announced it was being acquired by SK Capital Partners, a private equity firm based in New York. The price wasn't disclosed, but people with knowledge of the transaction said it valued Apotex between $3 billion and $4 billion Canadian dollars. Soon, Sherman's principal asset would be turned into cash to be divided by his heirs. As the rest of Sherman's estate is unwound, the financial affairs of his children will be increasingly unconnected from one another. Lauren lives in British Columbia with her family. Kaylin has been active in Israel. According to the financial newspaper Globes, she spent $41 million for a 50% stake in a seaside Ritz-Carlton hotel in 2021. Jonathan has used some of his money to retain a second private investigator, a former Manhattan prosecutor named Robert Seiden, who said he chose a career in law enforcement because of the killing of his brother, a bystander in a 1980s mob hit. According to a person familiar with the assignment, however, Seiden is mainly on standby in case new information emerges, rather than leading a fresh probe. In December, Alexandra marked the five-year anniversary of her parents' murders with a press release, attributed only to her, that reiterated that the $10 million Canadian dollar reward remains available and is still unclaimed. A few days later, Jonathan made a separate announcement through the CBC. He said he was adding an additional $25 million Canadian dollars. With Manuel Baigori and Riley Griffin. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.